This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you very much. Thank um, you for coming to Midlife Misery. <laughs> <laughs> we promise it really won't be that miserable. Or at least, yeah, anyway. <laughs> we, so, were, we were thinking of doing Midlife Nap, actually. Yeah. Because it's about this time, isn't it? Two o'clock? Two o'clock on a Sunday. <laughs> Quite warm. Um, but then they didn't have any wine in the yurt, so there was nothing to make soporific. So, good afternoon and welcome to this event on the final Sunday of the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Juliette Swan, and today it's my pleasure to be introducing Miranda Sawyer, who is here to talk about her new book, Out of Time, Midlife, If You Still Think You're Young. Um, the event will run as these events usually do. Uh, we'll have a chat, then there'll be a chance for you to ask questions, and afterwards, Miranda will be signing copies of Out of Time in the signing tent behind us. And we're going to be miserable all the way through. <laughs> there will be no <laughs> insane giggling in any way, shape or form. So, uh, Miranda Sawyer began her career writing for Smash Hits, a magazine that was an essential part of my growing up, so I'm sure it was for many of you also. Uh, she went on to write for Select, Time Out, Q, The Face, Mixmag, Again, all frequently purchased by me, my friends, and <laughs> my colleagues. Uh, well, I worked in a record shop, uh. so Q and Select were like our Bibles. That was how we knew what was happening. Yeah. Uh, something Back I will talk days. about later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she now writes regularly for The Observer, writes, presents, and guests on various radio and TV review and culture programmes. Um, she was a judge for the 2007 Turner Prize, and much to my essential jealousy, the 2010 Orange Prize. I always wanted to judge a book it's prize. I was pregnant. It was really hard work. <laughs> so you get given loads of books, obviously. Yeah. You get given loads and loads and loads of books, which is great. But after a while, because I was at that stage of pregnancy where you, you're given a, f a few months, but not as long as you might hope. And I was at that stage of pregnancy where you just, if you're sitting on a, a carpet, you just fall asleep <laughs> like that, with your head <laughs> on the carpet. And, and I got, so you have all these books to read. And... It's great, but at one point, at a certain point in the judging, I kept thinking, I really hope this book is bad. Because if it's bad... I can stop reading. You can just put it to the <laughs> side. And there was so... There's so many of them. There's so many of them <laughs> all in your sitting room like that, looking at you, that you have to read. It's like, it's brilliant, but, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, Out of Time sees Miranda face up to the reality of having fewer useful years ahead of you than you have already lived through an equation she labels death maths. <laughs> oh, Let's good. work it out. <laughs> uh, as we've alluded to, we're going to try not to live up to the event's subtitle of Midlife Misery, although I can't make any promises. So with a view to an entertaining hour, please join me in welcoming Miranda Sawyer. Hello! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> OK, I'm just going to invoke chair's privilege quickly. As I mentioned, I worked in yeah. a record shop. Tell me about writing for Smash Hits. Okay, it was really good. <laughs> All right, so I worked, from, I worked for Smash Hits from... 19, it was in 1988, and how I got the job was really brilliant. I have to say, it was just amazing. So I was doing a law degree, and I didn't like it at all, and I didn't want to be a lawyer, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was going to... I think I had an idea I was going to travel in Mexico for some reason. I don't know why. So I was going to earn some money and go to Mexico, and that was my career plan. And... Uh, I don't, in those days, the Guardian had a section at the, uh, on a Monday called the Media mm. Section. It was really 
full. And I never read The Guardian. I only read Smash Hits. That was literally all I read. <laughs> but my, I went to go and see my mum and dad in Manchester, so I bought a paper and I bought The Guardian. And in The Guardian, there was... I still got it. I've got it at home. There's an advert about that big, and it said, Pop Writer, Smash Hits. And it said... It was basically, they're looking for a pop writer, and at the bottom it said, Rock and Roll, like Noise Pollution. And I applied, and I wrote a letter in the style of Smash Hits, which was a very particular style. There were lots of inverted commas and jokes. And I had no qualification. I hadn't even done any journalism at university or anything. I just really loved Smash Hits. So I wrote this, and then somebody I knew had an Amstrad, and I went to the Amstrad and I carefully <laughs> typed it out, and I sent it off. And they called me in, which now I think I can't believe they called me in, because the... The whole place was a tip. I can't believe they found the letter. I can't believe any of it. <laughs> so they called me in, and at the time, Smash Hits was really big. It was selling like 880,000 copies mm. every issue, which is like every two weeks. So, so it was read by like two to three million people. It's really enormous. And they asked me in for an interview, and the editor was called Barry McElhenney, and I remember him saying to me, uh, Elton John is number one at the moment. Should I put him on the front cover of Smash Hits? And I was like, no way. You need to put... Brother Beyond on the cover. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was that smash it. And he went, I just have. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and so, so they tried me out. And I think basically what it was was they, somebody else got the job, if you saw what I mean, but they needed to train somebody up because they had so many uh, readers. And uh, I was the person that eventually that, that got trained up. You just learn on the job, really. And the reason... The reason why I know I was really lucky was because it was a fantastic job, but also because other people applied for it, and two of the other people applied for it. In fact, three of the other people I know. One is called Mark Woods, and he runs, now runs this really successful night in Vauxhall, a gay night called Ducky. So he, he's got amazing taste, really brilliant. The other one is um, David Quantic, who wrote Veep mm. and writes loads of you know, fantastic things. Really and the other one is Jim Moyer, also known as Vic Reeves. <laughs> didn't give it to him because he thought he was a bit mad <laughs> but they gave it to me because I think they just thought it's just a really tragic reader <laughs> who needs to be let in and it was completely brilliant I have to say it was just it was amazing because that's how I come I moved to London yeah. so I moved down there and they got I got paid 50 quid a day and I worked um Monday to Friday one week and then had one week off and moved down to London and you know it was just, just it happen. was fantastic yeah it was really brilliant everything you wanted it was like literally they brought one time a PR brought Morrissey into uh, the Smash Hits office and obviously we all loved Morrissey we all thought it was amazing but because we were quite stroppy and we just didn't look up <laughs> <laughs> and nobody noticed that Morrissey had walked into the office it was so we were like that it was so bad and uh, <laughs> And Bross was, I mean, I'm sure all of you hate Bross, but anyway, but like, <laughs> Bross were the big thing at the time, and they were so, it's quite hard to remember how big, big Bross yeah, were. and their they, little uh, beer can, beer yeah, bottle on, things on, on their, their shoes. on their shoes and yeah. their rich jeans. And they were really, I mean, they literally brought the whole of um, Oxford Street to a complete standstill, because we were in Carnaby Street, which is just off Oxford Street, and they came to visit us, and they, but the whole of the place just stopped with all these kids. It was amazing. It was completely brilliant, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and then... And I remember, as I say, I remember buying Smash Hits, I remember buying Select, I remember buying Q. And then suddenly, they all sort of stopped. Yes. It was almost all at once. Yeah, they did, really. It was annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Not it, my and, fault. And I was trying to think about it earlier. I was thinking, I mean, yeah, obviously, the internet was there, but it wasn't 
massive at the time. And so what? Wh- there was why? weird publishing decisions, actually, is what happened. So if you think this is possibly a bit boring, but it's like basically what happened is that Smash Hits was owned by a, a company called EMAP, and they owned Q and Just 17 and more and Looks. That's what they had. And then after a while, they invented Empire, and they bought Select and turned Select into something else. So they were quite a kind of mm. youthful publishing house. And they got taken over by a very large publishing house called Bauer, and Bauer owns like owns loads of radio um, stations and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so they decided to do this really weird thing where they wanted to do advertising across the radio stations all the way across the magazines. And they just changed the whole nature of the magazines. So they didn't really realise a really good magazine, it doesn't matter what that magazine is, is like a club. It's like mm-hmm. a club you want to join. Yeah. And, and uh, that is created by the people that are writing it and, are, and are kind of living together all the time and getting on each other's nerves and obsessed about the same thing, go out together. And then as a reader, you want to join in. And that can be like Vogue or, mm-hmm. or I'm trying to think like Loaded or it can be like Match of the Day magazine. It's something that you want to join. And they didn't really understand that. They just thought it was about advertising. And so all those things got bought up and kind of ruined, like the face got bought up and everything. And they just yeah. got ruined by the owners, really. And then the internet came along and kind of shut us all in the head, really. <laughs> yeah, because I miss that club. I know. I, see, I keep thinking about Smash It's now because I think it would be really brilliant. You know, there's loads of kind of quite interesting pop stars out there mm. that need to be treated in a Smash Hits way. Do you know what I mean? Like kind of Adele is one or um, like there's some like Stormzy kind of weird grime stars that are actually quite funny, but uh-huh. you never get to see them being funny because everyone just thinks they're really scary because uh-huh. they do scary videos, but actually they're quite funny. Yeah, and you're sort of torn between you either get like Hello or Daily Mail type yeah. stuff. Yeah, or, like, or Riddle really Kicks serious. or someone like that, you know, or yeah. Ed Sheeran, he'd be amazing in, in Smash, <laughs> Smash Hits. Hits. Or, one Direction, yeah, I mean, Ed Sheeran's bedroom. Yeah, anything <laughs> like that. He would be brilliant. He'd be entirely the person that had a photograph with a pineapple on his head, wouldn't he? He'd be just be really brilliant. <laughs> so I think, it, I, I think it's a shame that it's gone, really. So, dear lamented smash hits. Yeah. Um, but anyway, now you've turned the tables, and instead of writing about other people and <laughs> interviewing other people, you've shared something about yourself. Yeah. Which is obviously quite a different experience. Mm. Why? Uh, I actually was having a midlife crisis, <laughs> and uh, it wasn't kind of what I thought it was going to be, really. So I think um, if you think about midlife crisis, you think about a series of cliches, you know, and they're mostly uh, slightly male cliches, possibly set in the 70s and 80s, and they're about a fast car, they're about leaving your long-term relationship, your marriage, and going off with somebody younger, maybe dressing younger, and um, I hit middle age, and I felt a kind of uh, shift, I suppose, really, but it didn't seem to be like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I couldn't work out what it was. I mean, I could tell what it was, but I couldn't find what I wanted to read about it, really. And so I started uh, thinking about it. And there's, you know, if you write a book about about something that's happening to you, you have to be personal, but also it's, you want it to be universal as well. And so I was looking at it and I was thinking, okay, well, there's an idea of midlife crisis that we all understand, and that's completely, you know, something that we can deal with. Mm -hmm. And then there's my, you know, piddling little personal midlife crisis, because it was very undramatic. I didn't run off with a builder, and I didn't didn't do anything like you were meant to do. Like, I I thought at one point I might go for really long walks (laughs) and and meet authentic people (laughs) and talk to them about the meaning of life. And then I suggested this to my husband, and he said, yeah, that's fine as long as you take the kids. (laughs) (laughs) So that didn't really happen. <laughs> and, um, and then also, what I was interested as well is that 
if you, so, you know, I worked in Smash Hits, I started working in 88, and there was a kind of, uh, you know, I was very lucky, and there was a time in the 90s when it seemed like youth culture, um, which obviously I was involved in by writing about it, but I was just involved in anyway, and a lot of, lot of people were, not just people in London, all across mm. Britain. And I was interested in, if you were, lived through that, and you had a particular kind of youth, how does that affect your middle age? Because yeah. the thing that's really interesting about that time, I thought, was that essentially youth culture won. So if you think about, just previous to that time, if you think about, you know, all the way through kind of Bowie and punk and then out the other side into post-punk and into kind of indie, you know, even things like the Smiths, they never really moved out of the outside. They were always the alternative around the mm -hmm. edge. And if you, but then if you think about rave and Britpop and to a certain extent grunge, I suppose, they, we're right in the middle. Yeah. And so all these people that normally are on the edge, like Liam Gallagher or even Kate Moss or Irving Welsh or all these people, that, you know, comedians that were normally just, you know, would have had a nice career but around the edges of society, were right in the middle. And if you were part of that at all, and obviously I was writing about it, I suppose, you you felt like you'd won. You just mm -hmm. felt like, we, we are right. <laughs> you know? yeah. Our ideas and our heroes and what we believe in is right, and we've won now. And this youth culture or this culture that we've created will last and it's going to be fine. And the problem is that is obviously you get old. <laughs> and so you might be right about that. Maybe the youth culture is more important than it was previously to that. And you can look at things like late licensing or anything like that that directly came out of rave. Mm -hmm. um, but you are now older. So you've unwittingly created a kind of more youth-centered society that now you're not part of. <laughs> <laughs> you idiot. And, uh, and so I was interested in how that felt as well, really, mm. whether there's a kind of generational aspect to it. Yeah, that's interesting, actually, because yeah, when I first started working in a record store, we weren't allowed to play Nirvana. Really? And what was course, meant to happen? And then, of course, never mind, hit the shelves. <laughs> and they were like, oh, oops, we'd yeah. better play them after all. Yeah. And I liked the line you said, well, yeah, you don't wake up at 35 and suddenly go, oh, do you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to listen to Michael Bublé. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's quite hard, that, though, because I think that if you're brought up, you know, some things haven't changed. So I think originally what was meant to happen is that you were meant to listen to Radio 1 to a certain age and then Radio 2 and then Radio 3 and then Radio 4. And that was meant to happen in mm. an age way. And... No, it's so true. When I was growing up, that was what you thought yeah. happened. Absolutely. Yeah, that was absolutely what you I listened to Radio 1, my dad listened to Radio 2, my yeah. granny listened to Radio 4. This was what happened. Yeah, exactly. When you hit 30, you liked Ed's chew pot. And, uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> true. It's <laughs> just, just, but that doesn't happen, does it? So if I listen to Radio 2 during the day, I just want to kill myself, you know? I can't, I can't listen to it at all. I can't change myself. And so there's, it's quite hard, if you like. If essentially, I don't believe that your taste really changes. You know, if you like something in your late teens, early 20s, you'll probably quite like the same thing, a similar kind of thing when you're mm -hmm. older. You know, so I don't really like blockbuster films. In fact, I don't like very many films at all because they don't seem to make like the films that yeah. I like anymore. Yeah. All the ones that I quite like are really violent and I can't, I'm rubbish with violence. So like <laughs> all the indie films that I think are be really brilliant, there's some terrible stabbing or rape in it. I just can't bear them. So this, you know, the, the alternative culture that I like hasn't, my taste hasn't changed, mm. and so I can't move to Radio 2, <laughs> and I try and learn about Radio 3, but classical music to me is still a bit like, you know, like rave music when you used to go to, <laughs> you used to walk into a record shop and you used to go, have you got that one that goes, <laughs> <laughs> like that, and they go, yes, here it is, and yeah. that's what I'm yeah, like, classical music, <laughs> so I go to classical music and you've got that one that goes, because I don't know what it is, and so I haven't quite got to grips with Radio 3 either. <laughs> 
Um, and certainly a lot of the book is almost about um, routine versus the ability to do things differently. Yeah. And that when we get to middle, yeah, you're expected to follow these routines, that suddenly all these routines are in your life. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that sort of theme running through. Yes, okay. So <laughs> this, this, I have a big problem with routine. I know that routine is really good for you, and I accept that it adds structure to your life. But um, I spent a lot of my life trying to avoid routine. So I would, if I had work, I would do it all at once really quickly and then go and do something else for a bit. And the problem with having children is that that's not allowed anymore and it's not their fault it's the fact that they go to school so up until they go to school you can be pretty flexible if you're lucky enough you know to be able to do that but once they go to school you have to get up at the same time every day and they have to have certain stuff in their bags and they have to go to a certain place and you have to pick them up and that kind of thing makes me feel depressed and it also makes life go really quickly mm. so it makes your life go really 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 fast and at the end of the year you think what happened then i mean what happened <laughs> nothing you know he played football every saturday and <laughs> she did a bit of ballet <laughs> and i took them there <laughs> that was it and and there's an element of that that i that I understand is a bit pathetic of me, but I kind of find quite hard to cope with. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I've tried to get even more routine-y. Like, so, you know, you read certain things and it, it seems like if you get a better routine, like if you get up earlier and, you know, I don't know, half five in the morning and you meditate <laughs> and, you <laughs> and, you know, you take time for yourself, and you meditate, and then you do that yoga, and then you do, you know, uh, a bit of emailing, but then you ignore your emails while you take the kids to it, and you ignore them to a certain time. It's like if I was more, if I was better at the routine, I'd get more out of it, but I'm not that good at it, and so there's something about it that I find very hard. A lot of the book, for me, is, um, is struggling with the joy and difficulty of having kids, really, I think, because... When I felt like I was having a crisis, it was to do with having my daughter. And I had, to, I had my kids really late. So I had my son when I was 38 and my daughter when I was 43. So obviously, if you have a kid at 43, if you have a kid at any age, mm -hmm. how lucky you are. You know, I mean, you're really lucky, you know, especially if your kid is born healthy. Go you. That's brilliant. But if you have your kid at 43, then that's when I started doing the death math. So I would, you know, I <laughs> kind of, she was a lovely baby. She would sit there and I would like, you know, she was really good. And I would look at her and think, I'm so lucky to have you. And then I just started doing how long it would take me to get her through education and how old I would be <laughs> when she came out and what if she wanted to go to university. <gasps> and, uh, and all these things that I kept thinking that I wanted to achieve myself, whatever they were, vague ideas, I don't know what they are. Um, and that they would be restricted and, in fact, curtailed completely by the fact that I had my kids so late, because essentially once I got them out of the house, I'd have to go to an OAP's home, and that was it. <laughs> and that was the death math. So I, I started doing... Um, I looked up, because I kept meeting these blokes who kept telling me, I'm going to live to 100. And I was thinking, are you? I mean, are you going to live to 100? I mean, I know you eat brilliantly and you go running, but are you going to live to 100? So I looked up, and essentially, if you're born... I was born in 67. If you're born, like late 60s, early 70s, then uh, the average age that you will die for a bloke is 80, and for a woman it's 83. Now, if, you have a, if you've given up smoking, I've given up smoking, and I try to eat healthily and I run a little bit, you could probably add a few years. Should we add a few years? So, we add a few years. <laughs> 86? Maybe 87? And I was 43, so I was... I'd halfway passed, there? You know, I was halfway. And so, those are the things that you suddenly start 
worrying about. And what essentially I found was that there was two things I was thinking. One was, is this it? <laughs> you know that thing where you think you're working towards something and it's going to be middle-aged and you're going to be stable and you're going to know everything and everything's going to be brilliant. Mm. And I was there and it didn't feel like that at all. And I kept thinking, is this it? And then the other thing was, I kept thinking, I've done it all wrong. I've just done it all wrong. I've done it all wrong. I need to start again. And, <laughs> and then Miranda invented a time machine. Yeah, and you can't. You can't start again. But that kind of panic was... Mm -hmm. What it's about, really, I think. It's that weird thing where you think, oh, you know, I went on forums and they were mostly men writing and they were quite, they were really sad. And they would write things like, you know, I had an opportunity to have a job at 27 and I didn't take it. And I feel really gr regretful about that. Or they would say that they had a job that meant that they worked really, really, really hard all the time and didn't see their wife and kids very much and they felt like their wife and kids were one unit and they were another unit and they felt really lonely. Or they looked in the mirror and all they could see was the fact that they'd put on weight and they were gone bald and they could just see their dad. And they felt sad about it. And these feelings are genuine mm -hmm. and, you know, we laugh at them. But I always think in Britain, if we laugh at something, it means it's happening. You know, if, if we don't laugh at it, it doesn't exist. But if we make jokes about something, it really does exist. And in those forums, the thing I found really sad about it was they put these little awful, heartbreaking missives up on an NHS forum about midlife crisis, and no one answered them. Like, no one said, this is a usual feeling. Maybe you can contact Calm or something like that, mm -hmm. or, you know, you could maybe try a bit of running or something like to cheer you up. There were these myths, these really sad little missives, and then no one answered, and then there'll be somebody else a month later, and no one answered. Just it was sort of just out into the ether. Yeah, just fell into the ether. Those, th those are genuine feelings. It's just that we, we mock them, because we mock people that... Um, maybe because we created a youth-centred culture, we mock people who want to stay young. We want us all to stay young. We have to be youthful and look young and stuff like that. But if we do it too obviously, like if we have too much Botox, mm -hmm. or we wear, you know, our, or if you're a bloke and you get a hair weave, you know, people laugh at you. You're an idiot, you know. And that, I find that quite sad because actually you're doing what society is telling you to do, <laughs> trying to stay young and be vibrant, but you get laughed at, you get mocked at because you're not doing it kind of in a cool manner. And it's quite hard to be cool in the middle age, really, I find. <laughs> Don't know I find you. it quite cool to be, yeah, quite difficult to be cool. Ever, yeah, it's actually. just hard, you know, and it's difficult. <laughs> it's really difficult, isn't it? And so, you know, I think that we're really, we're quite cruel to people in middle age and we don't, uh, we, uh, I wanted to explore that and to understand why that was and what we can do about it ourselves rather mm -hmm. than, you know, I don't mind, you know, I run around the park and I, I'm rubbish at it and I, you know, wear horrible lycra and I have literally been laughed at by young people <laughs> as I kind of really slowly plod up the hill, really slowly and they walk past me, you know, like <laughs> striding. But I don't care, I don't care, you know, because, you know, you have to kind of claim that middle part of your life. It's quite hard to do it, but you have to claim it. Because I think there's something, because... There's something about, yeah, that when we were younger, we were sort of gathered together as oddballs. There was, mm. as you say, almost like that club thing you were talking about with the magazines. But, and you, you sort of, individuality was a good thing. And yeah. it was cool to be different and to be individual. But now suddenly it's like, that's not cool. And you have to sort of, but equally you have to be yourself. And yeah, like it's hard. There's a lot, it's a, there's a, you, I mean, obviously, uh, the one thing that is quite good about getting older is you stop caring quite so much about what people but think about you. But that's quite an effort. But it's, a, <laughs> it's like a flicking a switch on, I think, actually. There's a point where, you know, at the beginning of the book, I think I probably d did care. And mm -hmm. there's, 
you know, if you live in a capitalist society, which we do, you are always going to compare yourself to somebody who's got more than you, and there is always somebody who's got more than you. Yeah, different There's job, always, more always, money, always, different, always, yeah. always, 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 always. And in London, it's, you know, and I live in London, it's like rampant, you know. And we live in a flat in London, and it's a lovely flat, it's big, you know, it's really great, it's near a park, we don't have a garden. And I start completely beating myself up about the fact that we can't afford to have a garden, because I have kids, and one of them likes playing football. And I think, I've failed. But then... I don't want to move out to the suburbs. So there's, there's, it's kind of pathetic. It's pathetic how much I you know, beat myself up about it. Because actually, if you did want to do it, move to the suburbs and shut up. You know, <laughs> what's your problem? <laughs> but there's, a, there's an element of that, kind of trying to adjust to your... It's like your expectations of what your life... You thought your life was going to be, whatever that was. Maybe you thought you were going to live in a pink house on the top of a hill. Maybe you thought you were going to be an artist or whatever. Those feelings those shards of your life that you could have had, that you imagined you were mm. going to have, kind of trickle through your real life. And you can still see them. They're just over there. Like, you know, you might be able to catch them. And as you hit your middle age, you can feel that you can't quite catch them. And that's, that's hard to come to terms with. I know loads of people, loads of, it has to say it is nearly all blokes, who say they're going to invent an app. And I think, are you really? <laughs> Are you really going to invent an app? But they, they're convinced that this... It's like winning the lottery or something. I mean, it's probably as likely as winning the lottery. You know, this is what they're going to do. So they have all this creative experience. They're down with the kids and know how to use an iPhone. They're going to invent an app. And I think... Are you? <laughs> but then part of me also thinks that's good because it's just that little flicker of your life that you're mm -hmm. trying to get. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. But it's those weird... Those things clash in middle age in a way that I don't think they do in your 20s because in your 20s you've got potential and you know you've got potential uh -huh. and it's all the way there. Because it's something about expectations and what you set up for yourself and, yeah, that sort of 2.3 kids, white picket fence yeah. thing. And I wonder, is that still the case? Do you think your kids have that sort of expectation? God, I hope not. But, I mean... <laughs> No. I mean, one of them is convinced he's going to play for Man United. <laughs> you know, of course he's going to play for Man United. But it's, it's quite weird when you see kids because they have very strong magical thinking like that. So he is in a football team. He's pretty good at football, but there are loads of people better than him in his football team, let alone across the country. And he will assess himself really honestly. So he'll say, you need, I don't know, skill strength and stamina or something like that. And he said, I've got like maybe one out of three, but he's still going to play for Man United. Like, that's what he's going to do. And, and I think that, that that kind of thinking is what... Um, is, there's nothing wrong with it, and it's completely human, but that's kind of what mm -hmm. messes you up in middle age. There's all these surveys that um, have been done across, not just the UK, across Germany and America and South America, everywhere, and it's about happiness. And essentially, if you are lucky enough to live to your 80s, then you're really happy when you're really young, and, then you're, and you're really happy when you're old, but in the middle, there's a dip of happiness, and it's in your 40s. And, you know, there's arguments as to whether it, the, the kind of... Uh, I want to say pinnacle, that's completely wrong, isn't it? But the, the bottoming the out is at 43 <laughs> or 47, but it's there. And uh, that's when you... It hits you in your 40s, and it doesn't just happen to us. It happens to... Because I thought maybe that is to do with capitalism. But it's, um, it happens in apes. <laughs> so they did a study of orangutans, and it happened to them as well. <laughs> and so they didn't live quite as long, so it happened in their 20s. But in their 20s, they got really down in the dumps because, you know, somebody, a new orangutan had arrived who was better looking than them and a bit faster <laughs> and a bit more successful with the opposite sex, and they were feeling a bit down about themselves. But then they perked up when they got older. <laughs> so, so, you know, we perk up. 
So I guess, yeah, I told you we couldn't necessarily avoid all the misery, but the upside is it gets better. Yeah, folks. exactly. Yay. <laughs> and I guess I wonder if it's almost, aside from the expectation thing, there's also almost like that sort of sliding doors thing, as you, s you described so vividly yeah. with the grappling at things. And so it's that you look back and think, oh, if only I'd done yeah. X. Yeah. And I think that's where it's you have to suddenly sort of say, I have to stop doing Yeah, the that. coulda, woulda, shoulda. It's really easy to do, and we are encouraged to do it a little bit, I think, yeah. by... Uh, you know, the romantic nature of a being human. But um, it doesn't do you any good. But you can't... I think if you feel a bit down about something, whatever that is, you know, I mean, you know, and I'm not talking about if you have depression, but, you know, if you are feeling down about something, there's nothing wrong with feeling down for a bit. You know, we're told to be happy all mm. the time. And there's nothing wrong with analysing why you feel down and what that is. What that, and, and those coulda, woulda, shouldas are always going to bring you down, really. And, but I still don't think there's anything wrong with looking at them for a while. I was convinced that I should have been an artist. <laughs> <laughs> Only because I wanted to go to art college, I think. <laughs> I just think if I'd gone to art college, it would like have been pop. a real yeah, it would have been a real laugh. <laughs> you know, things like that. You know, it's although I really once went to a club night at Glasgow School of Art and discovered that I was so out of place, it was untrue. So I yeah. just knew I should never have gone to art school. No, but if you're so out of place, you would have been perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but you're one of your sort of the big. Uh, coulda, woulda, shouldas for you is the Madonna patio. Oh, yes, okay. So this harks back to the garden thing. Okay, so uh, so we live in this flat, it's lovely, and um, but it has no outside space. And at a certain point, it's when my son was quite little. Anyway, Madonna turned 50, so she is... It was about eight years ago, I think, and I got asked by a... Maybe nine. I got asked by a publisher to write a book but she was turning 50. And, and the book they wanted, I think, was one of those books that's about that thick with um, gold writing on the cover. It says Madonna. You know, the inside story <laughs> at 50. And um, I got very excited about that because I love Madonna and I thought that would be really brilliant. But um, I am from the soft side of journalism. So if I interview somebody, it's because they want to be interviewed. I'm not knocking on their doors going, you know, you must be interviewed by me. I'm not going through their bins or anything. It's all quite civilised. And I approached her people, and they said no. <laughs> so then I was confronted with this idea that I could write this book, but I would be going through her bins, or I would be interviewing her school friends, or you know, people who used, who used to work with her and now hate her. <laughs> and I would be kind of following her around the, the world on her amazing schedule, and nobody would be talking to me, and it would just be awful. And so I, after a while... I said no. Now, they offered me a lot of money to do this book. And it, now I think about the money, I think it's ridiculous because nobody gets offered that, that, that kind of money now because, because of the internet. <laughs> so, uh, and I gave the money back, or the virtual money that never appeared. You know, I gave the money back. But if I had had the... If I'd been able to work out how to write this bloody book, we would have a patio. <laughs> so... In our lives, we have a virtual patio, which is called the Madonna patio. <laughs> and sometimes when I moan about stuff, my husband said, well, you should have written that, written that book about Madonna. You know, <laughs> we don't need it. And it's called the Madonna patio. And that is, you know, one of the shards of my life. <laughs> it's there, the Madonna patio that I couldn't write, but I just couldn't write it, you know. And you have to, I suppose what you have to acknowledge is, as you get older, is what you're good at. You know, because still part of me at that time thought, well, I could have done it if I only had been more creative about it or I'd been... Mm -hmm. But, you know, I had a small child. I'd have had to have left him for a year, you know, to travel around the world. I didn't really want to do that. And you just have to acknowledge, I suppose, what you're good at. And I'm not very good at digging the dirt on people. It's not really my thing. 
And would it have even been an entertaining or enjoyable experience? It would have been a terrible experience, but I would have got the money, you see. Uh, but then <laughs> the you would patio. have like a, a really depressing Madonna Patio. Yes, it probably would have been awful. You wouldn't want to sit out on it. <laughs> yeah, you just have to acknowledge it. It's just you have to acknowledge that the Madonna Patio would have been there if you were any good at that. And I was no good at that. You might as well have asked me to become a ballerina, really. You know, <laughs> you know if you become a ballerina, you would have had a patio. It's just, it didn't happen. So now that you've put this all on paper, and as you were sort of saying about yeah. the guys who put onto the ether and it just disappears. How, how do you feel? How is I it? I feel much better. Write a book. It makes <laughs> you feel better. <laughs> I feel much better because um, I suppose if you, if you're, and I don't think you have to be a professional writer or anything about this, if you're interested in a subject and you manage to give yourself the time to research it and to go into it a bit more deeply and then, you know, maybe to just write things it makes you feel much better so for a while when I was writing the book where I felt really I did feel really down and the, I couldn't work out how to write the book either because I think initially I thought I was going to do a midlife crisis in a year and I was going to do January you know uh, run off to Thailand and discover myself you know February get fit uh, you know, March, buy a sports car. You know, it's going to be kind of jokey, I suppose. And there are jokes in there, but it didn't feel like that jokey to me. So I had to go a bit deeper and I kept writing. And some of the stuff I found, weirdly, when I was putting it together, it was really late. And they were all shouting at me at the publishers. And I found an entire chapter I didn't realise I'd re written. <laughs> and I went, here, have this. <laughs> it was about routine. <laughs> and I thought, have that. Um, because I wrote quite a lot and some of it was, you know... Oh, self-indulgent and maudlin and, you know, awful. You know, you're just the stuff you write when you feel really down you can never look at again. But I just kept quite a lot. And then it became something... Somebody told me, somebody who's much more experienced at writing books than me, told me that actually a book uh, after a while reveals itself to you. You think it's going to be one thing and it turns out to be something else. <laughs> and that's kind of what happened with that book. So there's a bit about the 90s in there that originally, honestly, it was about 20,000 words long. <laughs> who's interested in that? <laughs> so uh, you... The actual the activity of researching and writing the book and editing it down and chop, turning it into something else helped me quite a lot, really. Mm. Because in the end, I mean, what are you going to do? You know, really, what are you going to do? You know, the alternative is not to get older. And that's not a great alternative, is it? And, uh, you know, there's, there's an aspect to writing any book that is to do with yourself that's completely self-indulgent. And, you know, that's great. But if you don't then learn from that, then really, why bother? You know, there's no, there's no point in doing it. You have, to, you have to learn something from it. And what I learned is that, um, you know, we, we are told a lot, we are sold an idea that we can change our lives. And actually, it's really hard to change your life. You know, you have to earn a living. You have to bring up your kids. You have to pay the mortgage. You live in the area you want to live. And actually those things restrict you. Mm. You know, you're married to the person that you're married to, and sometimes in the middle of the night you think you want to kill them, you know? <laughs> and they're still the same person that you think is great the next day, but in the middle of the night you actively want to kill them. And, you know, what are you going to do? You're not going to... Well, hopefully you're not going to kill <laughs> Don't kill your spouse. <laughs> but, you know, you can't... To... You know, you can change your life. You can leave it all and you can bugger off and go and do something else. But, you know, that is really really drastic and you're still left with yourself mm -hmm. you know you're still that's still you that you're is living the life and actually i think that we we tell ourselves that we can change our lives and actually it's really hard to change the fundamentals of your life are really really hard to change so all you can do is change little bits and if you can change some of the little bits it's quite good you know <laughs> and i actively changed a few bits so from being somebody 
and I think this is quite a journalist role, from being somebody who's kind of sat at the back throwing bread rolls, you know, going, mm, you shit. Um, I thought, well, you can't really do that anymore because you're middle-aged and actually you're a part of the establishment, so shut up and get on with it. And you need to put yourself out there. So, you know, I became a parent governor. I joined a couple of arts boards to try and encourage young people into the arts. And I started a code club for kids. All these things that I would have, honestly, I mean, even like five, six years ago, I've gone, you know, really <laughs> snotty about it. And actually, if you don't do it, then who's going to do it? Do it, you know. Mm. If somebody asks you to do something, if somebody asks you to talk about women in the media, just do it, you know. Don't be sneery about it because you might help. Uh -huh. So those things helped. And then the other thing, which is really pathetic, is running really slowly, really slowly. Remember the really slowly. <laughs> really helps. <laughs> and, uh, and the reason why I say really slowly is that it has there's this really terrible statistic, which is that most heart attacks, like 90% of the heart attacks for, uh, for marathon runners happen to men aged 49. I just thought I'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> because they still think they're young. They push themselves really, really, really hard. And you can, you know, really don't. Just don't bother. You know, switch off the watch. But running really slowly helped. And I did a thing where, do you know those things called park runs, where they go every Saturday? And my son got into running, so he wanted to do one, and I did one with him. And uh, there was loads of people. It was the first, we were really naff. We did it the first Saturday after New Year, which is when everybody does it. <laughs> and um, there's like 400 people. So he sets off, he runs like the wind. <laughs> and around he goes, and I run really slowly, and I get lapped. <laughs> <laughs> by these 20-year-olds who are pounding around. But I think that's okay. And I finish, and I get given a little piece of paper, and it says 365, 365. And I'm like, that's all right. That's not bad. But uh, my son's really obsessed with, you know, stats. So we had to go online and check where he came and where I came. And it said I came 414th <laughs> out of 418. <laughs> <laughs> and the really awful thing was, having said to you, don't get competitive, I was gutted. I was absolutely gutted. <laughs> And I phoned them up. <laughs> what a dick. And I said, oh, I don't want to be, I don't want to be funny, but I got given a piece of paper that said 365, and you put me at like 414. And they said, yeah. <laughs> they said, yeah, there were so many people that we had to reissue the bits of paper again. <laughs> because there were so many people, and you did, I'm sorry, the times don't lie, you came 414 <laughs> out of 418. And this is after I've been running for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And I know the people who came after me. So the people who came after me was literally a girl of about nine and her mum, who kept stopping, because obviously they were quite young, and that was two of them. The other one was a woman who'd never run before, ever. <laughs> And the last one, I don't know, is possibly a dog walker. <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty much the last. <laughs> so don't time yourself. Because, you know, until I knew I was 414th, I had enjoyed it. <laughs> I think there's something in there as well. It was, um, there's, you talk about how you did gymnastics yeah. when you were younger. And there's something about, yeah, what, the things that you, your body just won't let you do. Yes. And it's really, you're like, yeah, but I want to run quickly exactly. and salt. And, yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, you know, it's like watching the Olympics. You know, we all think, you know, oh, brilliant. I could do that off the beam. It's going to be amazing. And there's, I did gymnastics as a kid, and there's part of me that can still remember, you know, not, not like, you know, they do, but, you know, I can remember a bit of it in my head. I can remember what it feels like, and that can make you feel really regretful. Mm. But I think if you do certain sports, and I'd say running is one and cycling and swimming, which are kind of the things that you do as a kid, but also they're quite kind of repetitive. And um, 
it brings you into your body. And when you're in your body like that, you don't feel any different from when you did when you were seven. You feel like the same, it's the same feeling. You know, you might be going slowly, but it's still your body running. And it's the same feeling as you had when you were seven or 27 or 37. It's the same feeling, and that really helps. And also, I have a theory, which is that if you went raving at all, then uh, I used to think that it was the music and the dancing and possibly the drugs that gave you the high. But actually, I think it was just the repetitive movement. <laughs> so if you go like that, like for quite a long time, <laughs> you get a massive high. It's brilliant. And so I do that around the park, like this, really slowly. And I get a massive high at the end. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Listening to rave music or rhyme, even. No, I listen to economics podcasts to keep, <laughs> to keep me from going too fast. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> it's true. That's what I listen to. Um, I have lots more I could talk about, but I figure it's uh, time to give you guys a shot. So if we can bring the house lights up a wee bit. Hello. Thank you very much. I look at Hi. all the people. Uh, questions, really go. Lady at the front here, there will be somebody with a microphone, and that way everyone, and then there's a woman in the middle there um, as well. Hello. Hello. Um, when you, after you got your midlife crisis, um, did you get at all a light bulb moment when you thought, oh, I can do this, or was it very gradual, or it just... Was, it, was, it was weird, because there's evidence to say that with midlife crisis, it's quite often a triggering event. I mean, you might just feel uh, sad, you know, but it, a triggering event might be you get the sack, um, you get divorced, your kids are born or your kids leave school, um, or your parents get ill or die, and those, those events can trigger things. I mean, there's a lot to deal with in middle age, I think. And so mine was a trigger event. It was my daughter being born, which should have been happy, and it was happy, but that was a trigger event. But I found that, um, for me, there wasn't really a trigger event coming out of it. I just decided to make a few changes. And I taught, you know, part of the privilege of the job I have is to interview interesting people, you know. And I interviewed um, quite a few... A female uh, pop stars are a bit older than me. Well, not pop stars, uh, I don't know what you want to call them, icons. So like, um, I interviewed Viv Albertine from the, from the Slits. Actually, not just women, I interviewed uh, Paul Weller, I interviewed Wilco Johnson, who obviously had that amazing experience where he thought he was going to, he literally thought he had 10 months to live from cancer. And then he, and he lived that, those 10 months in an absolutely blissful state. He didn't have chemo. He loved it and felt really alive. And then somebody operated on him and got rid of the cancer, and he felt really down <laughs> because then he had to live the rest of his life. <laughs> um, but uh, he, so I interviewed him. I interviewed um, Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth. I interviewed Chrissy Hind, and all these people are people that I really, really admire who are a bit older than me. And so I wanted to find out how. I mean, obviously, I can't be like them because they're amazing. But how they got through this particular time, and they said certain things. So Paul Weller said to me that if he doesn't think about it he doesn't feel any age at all he just mm. feels like who he is and I think that's possibly true I think that's true if I don't think about it too hard I just feel like who I am uh, and um, Viv Albertine said that um, if you can remember what you like to do in your late teens or early 20s whatever that is it might be anything you know going to second hand shops or going camping I don't know whatever playing the guitar if you can play the guitar if you start doing that again it makes you feel better and I found that you know, a little bit of exercise because I used to do a lot of sport. Um, and um, 
and, and those things kind of helped, really. You know, if you, the other thing I think that maybe should be acknowledged is that um, all, if I think about Kim Gordon, Chrissy Hind, uh, Debbie Harry, uh, Viv Albertine, all those people were really amazing, you know, amazing, amazing uh, musicians and stars, you know, innovators. And then there was a time when they kind of disappeared from public view, and that's because they were doing, they were caring. Mm. That, you know, there's all, in the middle of your life, especially for women, I think, there's quite often an aspect to caring. You're caring for kids, or you're caring for a sick partner, some of them were, or you're caring for your parents. And you have to take that time back. You know, just, take, just accept that here you are in that moment looking after kids or your parents, and it might be boring, but that is the stuff of life. And then, once that time is over and all those things move on, then you can return to what you like, and that helped quite mm. a lot, really. Sorry. That was a long answer, wasn't it? Sorry. No, <laughs> um, there was someone in the middle there, lady with the curly hair. Yep. There. Her hand up so the lovely runny-about microphone woman can get to you. That's their official Hello. title. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I'm interested in kind of trying to squeeze things into your 40s because you think you don't have time to do it. You've got to do it now or never. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you had that feeling at all. It's like, I've got to do it now. I've yeah, very much so. I mean, it's also you're told that, you know, there's a weird thing to, um, to life where you fall into different categories. Do you know what I mean? You know, that thing where they go, oh, um, I don't know what it is. It's like up to 18 and then, up to, oh, and, yeah. and then you know, once you get past 50, that's, yeah, apparently you just fall off a cliff or something, you know, you just don't, you don't exist, you know, if you go to read a magazine, it says things you must do by the time you're 20, 30, 40, 50, doesn't exist, that's it, you know, you're over. Um, so, yes, yeah, there is, you know, there's an element, but I think that quite a lot of, um, as you get older, full stop, you know, I look at my mum, my mum's 78, and she's slightly ticking off um, countries she'd like to go to, you know, because she's, con she's aware that there's a, finite amount of time so what does she want to do with it and I do th and I think that possibly your 40s and I am you know maybe wrong about this but your 40s are still a time when you can change your life quite a lot I just I'm just anti-changing it for for those selfish reasons where you just throw everything up and walk off mm -hmm. I'm not really I think that's maybe too selfish you know but in terms of you know traveling or changing your job you still have that time where you think yeah I can do that now I mean you know I'm not going to play for Man United, but, you know, not that I ever wanted to, but, you know, th those things, no, but other things, yes, I do. I have a... That's the death math, though, isn't it? It's and, and, the and as you say, yeah. finite bit of it. And it's about making What do you want to do? <laughs> ah, that's good. Are you ticking them off? Yeah. Yeah. A friend said to me, I was always had real problems with commitment about everything, apart from weirdly my job, but, um, uh, you know, fellas or where to live or anything like that. And uh, she said, commit and then see what happens. And that, honestly, that completely <laughs> changed my life. <laughs> is, I know this is really basic. You possibly all knew this already. <laughs> like, it was amazing. But for me, it was a massive revelation. I was dithering about, like, whether I should be with a per certain person, whether I should have kids, you know. <laughs> just commit. And then if you don't like it, do something else. <laughs> it's amazing, <laughs> amazing what life can do. Okay, anyway, uh, someone at the back. Hi, um, could you relate to a lot of what you were talking about there? Thank you. Um, Thank you. I heard you saying that you got a lot therapeutically almost from writing the book and um, living through that journey. What are you hoping people reading the book will take from it? What was your oh purpose God. of writing it and publishing it? Just a small Well, question. I hope you're not bored. <laughs> um, I, well, 
Whenever I write, I think of the readers. It's from being a journalist, I think. Uh, so if I interview somebody, obviously I want to convey to them, convey what they're like, but actually I'm always thinking about the reader. I nearly always think about my mum, actually. So if I interview somebody like, you know, she's never heard of, I want to describe them in a way that she understands. So um, I'm always thinking about the reader in terms of, of that. You know, I want people to be entertained and to take stuff from them. I don't know, you know, it's not a self-help book. I'm not qualified. I can't tell you how to live your life. I don't know your life, and I'm, I'm completely unqualified to do those things. It's just that I, what you hope with any book, really, is that people read it and go, oh, yeah, I felt like that, but I hadn't realised I felt it until you wrote it down. That's, what I, that's like the ultimate compliment, I think. But other than that, I just hope you like the jokes. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I did, there's a, um, I first started listening to it on Audible, and actually, um, so I was, it was hugely ironic. I was like doing the cleaning, listening yeah. to Out of Time, and then just chuckling out loud, like with my, you know, Dinon headphones. That's brilliant, <laughs> How amazing. And my partner's there going, what are you, what are you, you doing? I really <laughs> love cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Uh, anyone else? Maybe on this side of the room? Oh, there's someone down at the front and then you, sir, in the middle. Thank you. Um, you haven't mentioned the M word. Ah, the menopause. Uh -huh. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> okay, so there was two... I've mentioned it a little bit in the book. Uh, perimenopause is one of the things I mentioned, but menopause a little bit. Uh, menopause is interesting to me because interest, I wanted the book to appeal to men and women, but also menopause to me and also the other topic I considered was um, hitting your infertile years without having a had a child if you'd wanted one. Um, those two topics are so big that I kind of... I think if you want to cover them, you need to take them out and put them in an entirely other book. Um, but menopause is really interesting to me, and I did cover it a little bit. And one of the things that um, I find... Um, interesting about it is how it's medicated mm -hmm. so uh, I'm in apparently the perimenopausal stage which means the menopause is just over there <laughs> just coming <laughs> you can hear it um, and um, and they just with those things they just list a massive things that you know you might feel an anxious you might wake up in the middle of the night and rip your life apart but I was doing that anyway because I was having a midlife crisis and you might get hot I don't know about you Feeling pretty hot. Yeah. Are you feeling hot? <laughs> we're all feeling hot. Maybe we're having hot flushes. Who knows? Um, they list a kind of list of like really kind of awful symptoms that are so um, everyday as well as weird that you can't work out if you've got them or not. And that's how you know you're perimenopausal. When you're menopausal is when you really know when you've, you've got them. So friends of mine have been to the doctor and said, I'm, uh, I'm in the menopause and this means that I can't sleep. And this is really, really common in the menopause, and this has happened to more than, I mean, th at least three of my mates. The doctor goes, that's okay, have some Prozac. And it's completely medicated in that way, not even HRT, Prozac, because they said that, that will help you sleep. And uh, I'm interested in that because one of the things I found about researching, sorry, this is a long answer, but one of the things I found about researching the book is that when um, midlife crisis, the, the term was coined, it was in the 60s, and it was only assumed to refer to men, as high-achieving individuals, which were men at the time. And so there were a few books written about women um, in the 70s and 80s, and they're quite hard to read because essentially what they say to women is that you get married, you have your kids young, and then the kids leave, and that's it. 
you can't do anything. You're not allowed to get a job because all these, there's a lot of, in these books, there's anecdotal evidence of women going out to maybe try and get a job and their, their husband's saying, you know what, you, I don't want you to have a job. I'll pay you to stay at home or you have to stay at home and dust the ornaments for the next 30 years until you die. And obviously, at that point, a lot of those women were on antidepressants. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a massive, you know, it was a massive deal. It was Valium in those days, Mother's Little Helper, wasn't it? And so they were completely medicated through that middle-aged time and actually possibly into their old age. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that if you're doing that, if you're medicating the menopause with Prozac, you're doing exactly the same thing. You're giving a middle-aged woman Prozac because she's not allowed to be unhappy or anxious for some reason. We, are, we have to be coping at all times. Um, and then you'll just medicate yourself into old age on a nice happy cloud. And that to me seems to be really wrong. In term, but it, I do think in menopause in terms of a whole subject, it's, it's too big to put in a in a book that size, you know, it's almost like you need to write a whole book about it. And there are whole books. I mean, it's interesting to me there are more books written about it now. Because it never used to be mentioned, did it? You remember when Madonna, uh, just to mention Madonna again, um, when she adopted, you know, all the different kids, nobody said, oh, the reason why she's adopting the kids is she can't have children anymore because she's going through the menopause. Nobody said that. They just said, oh, she's really awful. She's going around to pick up all these kids from, from different places. And there's no mention of the fact that she, um, I mean, maybe she was doing it for various reasons, but one of the reasons is possibly also because she can't have kids anymore. So anyway, that's a really long version. Again, sorry, I talk too much. Next answer is going to be like two words. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so there was a gentleman in the middle there. Can we find, yep. I could have just shouted. Um, <laughs> do you think having children made you more aware of the ageing process and the wanting to get things done in a time frame, or did it make it not an issue because you don't have enough time to think about those things. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, yeah. I think children, are, they make you really aware of time. So um, they pull time around in really weird ways. So uh, they do things like line their trains up on the floor. And, you think, and it makes you go zoom back to your childhood. And you're exactly the same. You can remember doing that yourself. Or they do things and you think, so you feel you're suddenly in touch with your childhood in a way that you, you know, you're really quite in touch with your childhood in a way that you weren't. But obviously also, you're the responsible adult, which is quite hard. <laughs> and you become very aware of that as well. So I think having kids does lots of things, but when it's really, really brilliant, it puts you bang in the middle of the present because you're doing Lego or some stupid game over and over, you know, singing Let It Go until you want to drop dead. But you're doing it, you're absolutely living in the present while being completely aware of your parents and your time and everything around you at the same time. So they do really odd things, I find, really odd things to time. But yes, I agree that they eat up your time, but you know. <laughs> what else could you be doing other than building Lego, you know? And there's a point where they don't want to do that. So, and that's quite sad. Oh, God, I don't want to finish on that note. No. <laughs> Shall we have a Quick, song? one last question. <laughs> <laughs> one last question for happiness. Oh, uh, you, will you say it's not going to be a happy question? I can, it doesn't have to be happy. I Miranda can will have to happy. give a happy answer. Um, <laughs> a quick happy answer. Yeah. It's more to do with the decisions that you make when you're at this age, the impact that that's going to have on your family and probably specifically yep. your children and how the whole just sort of the running away from it all isn't something that probably most people want to do. But then the question is, how far are you prepared to change your, your life and your 
family's life yeah. in pursuit of what it is that of your potential of exactly and i'd be interested to know what you think yeah it's very hard i mean that's what's you know it's weirdly what being a grown-up is isn't it it's that weird sense of compromise it's like you are lucky enough if you are in middle age maybe you're lucky enough to have people who are relying on you i mean that's a privilege you know in the end isn't it to have somebody that loves you enough to be relying on you whether that's your kid or your parent or your partner you're very lucky and um it doesn't always feel like luck it sometimes feels like a burden, but you have to be aware that you're lucky and to work out what you want to do, really. You know, there's, there's a woman I... I gave a talk to some magazine women. Sorry, I have to shut up. There's a, there's a, there's a, I gave a talk to some magazine women and she, there's a woman who said, you know what, I want to go to somewhere like... It was like Laos. And I wanted to go there... For, she wanted to go there for a month and she was really panicking about it. It's a month. I mean, it's literally a month away yeah. from your kid. It's not like... It's a month. It's fine. You know, we can do it. And also... I'm sorry, I am ruffling. There's one thing I want to say, there's a choice. You can just, you know, in the end, what I realise is that you can, you can have exactly the same circumstances and just change your attitude to it. And if you choose to be happy, you're happy. See, so that's that was worth waiting for, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, lovely audience. Really long, really no, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> we, we, we still have it's it's good. Okay. Yep, we're just good. I will get told off. Um, thank you very yes, much for coming. For we are gonna audience. pop next door now and so you can buy the super fun laugh out loud fun fest <laughs> that that, <laughs> that is out of time and Miranda will sign a copy for you also. So we will see you there. Thank you again. Thank you, everyone. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.